Welcome to the Retirement Wisdom Podcast. I'm your host, Joe Casey. So retirement brings freedom, flexibility, a lot of time that you can do, finally, whatever you want. That demanding boss, that annoying coworker, there in the rearview mirror. But there's a problem that comes up early in the transition retirement for many people, and that's you get a lot of requests. And maybe, just maybe, you're saying yes too soon to too many things. And before you know it, your schedule is jammed and you're one of those retirees said, boy, I don't know how I ever had the time to work. I'm busier than ever. But the problem is you're busy with other people's priorities, not the things that you really want to do. The late Stephen Covey, in my opinion, said it best. He wrote, you have to decide what your highest priorities are and have the courage, pleasantly, smilingly, non-apologetically, to say no to other things. And the way you do that is by having a bigger yes burning inside. But saying no isn't second nature to many people. It's not an easy thing to do, but you can learn. And today we have an expert joining us with some great advice and deep knowledge on this subject. Our guest is Natalie Liu. She's the author of the new book, The Joy of Saying No. Natalie Liu is a writer, artist, and founder of the Baggage Reclaim blog and host of the Baggage Reclaim Sessions podcast. The UK-born, Dublin Island-raised author, helps people understand how their emotional baggage is interfering with their ability to live their lives happily and authentically. Her advice has been featured in the New York Times, Forbes, NPR, the Washington Post, and the BBC, among many others. Natalie lives in Surrey, England, with her husband, two daughters, and their dog, Chester. Natalie, thanks for joining us on the day that your new book launches. Thank you for having me, Joe. It's really good to be here. So my first question is, what leads people to say yes when we should or we want to say no? I think a lot of the time we say yes because we are on some level afraid of what will happen if we say no. And that might be a very conscious thought in that moment, but often it's more of a feeling that we have that we just almost automatically respond to it by saying yes. I think as well, we like to make people feel good. And that means different things to different people. But in that moment, even though we might already know, I really, really don't want to do that. Making that person feel good by letting them believe that that's what we want to do. We like that. We like being thought of as as nice and helpful and unselfish and good. And these prompt us to say one thing on the outside and have a totally different thing going on internally. I think as well, it is a habit. So when we say yes, when we, we really need one to or should say no, it's because it's a habit to do so. So that might mean that we have automatically said yes without even pausing for a beat to consider ourselves. But it's also just this habit that it's like, oh, I'm, I'm supposed to say yes. And it can be specific to the situation. Like we're so used to saying yes in that situation, regardless of actually previous experience of that, or we might be very used to saying yes to a particular person. And it's almost like, oh, I don't have it on file for saying no to this person. This person expects me to say yes. If I were to say no to this person, it would be really weird. And so that could be our partner or our children or our parent or whoever it is. But in our mind, it's our habit to say yes to that person, regardless of whatever we're feeling on the inside. 
I think as well, let's be honest, part of the reason why we say yes when we actually really could do with saying no is sometimes we have a hidden agenda. So there's something that we're hoping to get out of the situation as well. It's like, well, I'll say yes to this. And then maybe next time that person's thinking, oh, well, I'm going to choose this person for that, they'll choose me. So there's, there's all these underlying things going on behind our relationship with yes. So our listeners can't see the great sweatshirt that you're wearing, which says recovering <laughs> people pleaser on it. And what's behind being and becoming a people pleaser? So people pleasing is a habit that we have learned in childhood. It's also really part of As humans, we are socialized and conditioned into people-pleasing based on various messages and signals that we're getting about what is considered to be quote-unquote good and bad. So, you know, an example I often give is, you know, even when you think about how we talk about babies and it's like, oh, they're such a good baby. And we call them a good baby because they sleep. As if to say... (laughs) A baby that doesn't sleep is a bad baby, which is is fascinating. But as humans, we have this thing about some things are good, some things are bad, and, and everything, we have a way of categorizing this. And because of how we've been socialized and conditioned within the environments that we grew up in, so around family and, and school and church and community, what we've seen on the TV or read in books or or through other forms of media, we've really internalized this idea that it is bad to be displeasing. And our ideas of what it is to be displeasing are rather messy because fundamentally, we have really become people pleasers because we've learned that it's wrong to have needs, it's wrong to have desires, it's wrong not to meet people's expectations even if they're completely unrealistic and unreasonable. And it is wrong to feel your feelings and to express them. And it is wrong to be different from others. And sometimes we've had people say this, but we've also inferred these messages. And so as a result, we have become people pleasers, people who suppress and repress our needs, desires, expectations, feelings, and opinions to get attention, affection, approval, love, and validation, and also to avoid conflict, criticism, disappointment, rejection, and loss, or even what some of us would call abandonment. And this people-pleasing causes us to be inadvertently disingenuous, and we end up being anything but who we really are. That doesn't mean that we don't have these good qualities that so many of us kind of cling to. We're like, oh, I'm I'm generous and I'm giving and I'm thoughtful and I'm conscientious. It's not that we're not those things, but they've become very murky because of why we do things. And it's the why that makes us people pleasers because there are lots of people, and I say this, you know, in the book, that there are plenty of people who do things for others who don't do it because they're afraid of what will happen if they don't. There are plenty of people who maybe put in a bit of extra time at work or volunteer for things, but they, they're not doing it because they can't or won't say no. 
they're doing that because they want to. And if they become aware that, oh, actually, I need to step back here, I need to revise this, this yes, be more careful, be more intentional, then they will. Whereas for us people pleasers, we are doing this stuff because we see it as a way of being worthy. We see it as a way of being purposeful and, and needed. We see it as if I don't do these things, then I'm not a good enough person. And these are, are very painful ways to go about doing things. You mentioned in your book a term I hadn't come across before, the age of obedience. What is it and what role does that play? Oh, I love talking about the age of obedience. Over the last <laughs> several hundred years, everybody has been raised in this age of obedience, which is where the, the raising, interacting, disciplining of children centered on making them as good as possible. And good meaning that they are excessively compliant. And so it was really about obeying authorities. And so unless you're a child right now, and bear in mind, we're obviously still grappling with this people-pleasing epidemic as such, but unless you're a child right now, you were definitely raised in the age of obedience. And we, boundaries, feelings, needs, values, these were not talked about when we were growing up. And speaking specifically to your audience, they will have been raised during a time when they are far more likely to have heard messages like, well, what are you complaining for? I've been through the war. I didn't have shoes on my feet. I didn't go to school. I didn't go to university. By the time I was 10, I was already out earning for the family. That's not to say that those things don't happen in the world now. Of course they do. But they are far, it was far more prevalent when we were growing up in the past. I mean, kids didn't have as many, anywhere near as many rights as they do right now. And it was this age of authorities know best. It was about children must be seen and not heard, or do as I say, not as I do, or if you want something to cry about, I'll give you something to cry about. If you keep talking back to me, I'm going to kick you out of this house. If you don't like who I am or, or what I have to say, then you know what you can do with yourself. I mean, how is a kid going to leave the house? It's like this threat of, if you don't always agree with how I feel and what I think and what I'm doing, well, then you know what you can do. There's the door over there. And all of this, this age for obedience has socialized and conditioned humans into being disassociated from their bodies because it's really difficult to comply. So to be this excessively compliant person who is afraid of appearing rude and difficult and disobedient to authorities and also be aware of our feelings at the same time, like the two things don't go together. It's a great point. And Prince Harry seems to have gotten over his people-pleasing <laughs> age of obedience these days. And you explain in your new book, The Joy of Saying No, that there are various kinds of people pleasers. Can you give us a brief overview of the, the different styles of this? Yeah. So in the book, I talk about the five styles of people pleasing or the five types of people pleaser. And those styles are gooding, efforting, avoiding, saving, and suffering. And the names of them imply 
how we go about people pleasing and what we are primarily driven by. So people who have that people pleasing style of gooding are very much about being seen as being good. It is often more about what having people like them being perceived as good, like how things look. It's more important for, for things to look good than it is for them to be okay. Efforters, they are also concerned to a degree with being good, but they're very much about efforts, as the name would imply. So their form of people-pleasing will be, how much efforts can I use to change the outcome, to get what I want? I am, I'll hold my hands up to it, I am an efforter through and through. I have elements of the others, as anybody would, you know, in the society where we're raising the people-pleasing, but Efforts is where it is at for me. And you're laughing because it's you too. (laughs) We are the people, we engage in perfectionism. We're like, I've got to give 100% to this. We think we have to be the best, do the best, be seen to be given the most amount of effort. We're the ones who, that's not to say others don't, but efforts are the most prone to burnout. And then there are avoiders you know, people who have the people-pleasing style of avoiding and their way of being pleasing is avoiding anything that will cause any possible discomfort to others. And people can make a, practically make that into a vocation because it's like, I am just going to tiptoe through life. I'm never going to bring up that thing. I'm never going to voice my need. If you say to me, what do you fancy doing tonight? Do you know what? I'm not going to say anything about that. I'm going to let you, you pick. Because they do not want to do anything that invites any discomfort on others, because then it's like, oh my God, what will that expose me to? People who have the saving style of people pleasing, the helpers, the fixers, the supporters of this world. Now, I want to be clear I am not saying that helping and support are bad, but helping and support with a hidden agenda, AKA people pleasing, and helping and support without boundaries are not helping and support. They're not giving. And people who have this style, they are another set who can be very prone to burnout because there's almost this sense of like, it's bad to not be seen to be helping, but they're also not aware of their motivations. And so they end up in this vicious cycle and they take on too much and they overgive and they overwhelm. The suffering style Often people arrive at that style because they've already fallen on their sword, really, with doing something else like the efforting or or the gooding. But they see it as the more you suffer, the better that makes you as a person. Like suffering makes you a good person. So if I'm willing to bleed for you and keep bleeding for you, then I'm a good person. But also, surely the more I bleed, the more it makes it more likely, more really a given that others will want to finally meet my needs and take care of me. And so you can find that people who have this style, you know, the suffering, they're the scapegoats, typically in a family or in a group of people. They, are, they struggle with really respecting their boundaries and drawing a line with people. That's not to say that the others don't, but sufferers, because their identity is so much based on suffering, just like for us as efforters, our identity has been very tied up 
in effort. If your identity is tied up in suffering, you're not going to allow yourself to not be in a position where you're not suffering because then that contradicts who you think you are. Thanks for walking us through those. Very interesting. Completely interesting set of types. New topic. What have you learned about setting healthy boundaries? Well, the thing I always say is I grew up and and for quite some time lived as an adult who believed that boundaries were terrible. And I have discovered time and time again that the sky does not fall down when you have boundaries. Like Armageddon doesn't happen. The world isn't blown up. That's not to say that everybody always, quote unquote, reacts really well. But actually, boundaries are a really good thing. Like, I wrote this book because I genuinely had discovered the healing and transformative power of saying no and having boundaries. And actually, I make a point of saying that because I think that people see boundaries as saying no, telling people what to do. And a big thing that I learned about having boundaries was boundaries are about being more of who you really are, because then you are aware of the difference between you and others. You're operating from a place of integrity, authenticity, honesty. I had always been terrified of that because I saw that as if I have boundaries, then I'm going to be rejected because I'm not being who people want me to be. I've also learned as well that boundaries are a work in progress. So I don't want anybody to listen to this conversation and think that tomorrow they're going to wake up and leap out of bed and be like, praise the Lord, I finally have boundaries and I just skip out of bed and life will be hunky-dory because they listened to this conversation or they went and picked up the book. Because the reality is we have spent a lifetime having a messy relationship with boundaries. And so we are unlearning those messages. And that takes having to be in situations that bring us face to face with our boundaries. I think what a lot of us want to do, and I have been through this, is, oh, I've realized that I don't have boundaries or that my boundary is messy. I've realized that people, please, okay, I've decided that I don't want to do that anymore. Right. Well, now that I've decided, I've said my boundary is this, then ipso facto, everything is sorted. And they don't want to go through anything too difficult because they see that almost as punishment. And I get it because, my goodness, I know I've had my moments of frustration going, why am I going through this? But we've been invited. I mentioned earlier, like boundaries are not about ruling others. And this can really just take the pressure off us because I used to think, oh, so I'm going to have this boundary and I should just be like, my boundary is whatever. Hot tip, everybody. If the sentence you're using is something along the lines of my boundary is this, really be in that boundary because we are your name and you turn around and you go, Zoe, I've just overstepped a boundary. There, you told me your name is Joe. It's as simple as that. Our boundaries are as to as they are about what we say no to. So I think that this was quite a relief, really, for me because I realized that it wasn't about trying to micromanage everybody else and telling them what to do and getting into arguments all the time. It was, oh, trying to show up in the world each day a little bit more honest than I was before. Natalie, what do people tend to discover when they start saying no more often? Well, if they have been quite the people pleaser or what might be what I would call like a frequent or a chronic people pleaser, 
they discover that there are certain people in their life who have been quite reliant on them saying yes all the time. Something I point out in the book is that if you say no, if you express your limits, if you make more clear who you are and somebody kicks off about that, that is because they are overdue on receiving a no from you. And so what people discover when they start saying no is that they possibly have a people-pleasing entourage. Certain people in their life who benefit from them not saying no. You know, like celebrities, and you know, they've got sometimes that group of hanger-oners, and even though they're blowing all their money on drugs or whatever it is, none of these hanger-oners point that out because they don't want to stop the grape train. So a lot of people pleasers discover, oh, there are certain people who are really reliant on me just going along with things. And that can feel very uncomfortable initially. What they also discover, though, is that a lot of the things that they were nervous about saying no to aren't really that big of a deal. And that's not to say that there aren't certain areas where it can feel tricky. I had that with family I think in particular, and actually even with work to a certain extent, where even though it it might not necessarily be a person, trying to discern what it was that I needed to say no to could sometimes feel tricky because it's like, but what if I'm sabotaging an opportunity? But I think a lot of people are surprised that, oh, I don't have to tell a big ass story. I don't have to tell them my life story. I don't have to say sorry. I don't have to justify the fact that I'm saying no. What I do need to do is say no in the first place. This, when they start to explore saying no in their lives, they realize that actually they probably haven't given some people in their life enough credit in the sense of they have behaved as if everybody's a bit of a villain. And if they were to turn around and say no, to be more clear about who they are, then everybody will be like, oh my gosh, I'm done with you. And we have to really step back and have a think about why we see some of the people in our lives in this way. I think as well that something that surprises people when they start to say no is that they come face to face with the realization that, oh, before I was telling lies and now I'm actually being more honest. because they suddenly make that connection between the disingenuousness of, is that a word, disingenuousness? We'll go with it anyway. But (laughs) they realize, oh, I've not really been honest. And so they're showing up a little bit more in the world, but it also, in its own way, gives people around them permission to be more honest too. And in a good way, because something else we can discover as people pleasers is that some of the people in our lives have felt a little bit like they're tiptoeing around us because they're so afraid of upsetting us because they know we're so invested in this idea of I get to go first. I'm the one who volunteers. I'm the one who always does this particular thing. And then now when they start saying no, say people realize, oh, I can be honest with you because I don't think we realize how people don't necessarily feel secure in who we are. They don't know what to expect from us. They don't know if we're being as honest and authentic as we are making out. So 
they find actually that some of their relationships really relax and become more intimate and authentic. So in the moment, how can a pause be your best friend in saying no? Oh, I love the power of the pause because when we consider that people-pleasing is a very automated response, we're either doing it automatically or almost automatically. So we might for momentarily be like, oh my gosh, I have this feeling or I have this thought. Okay, boom, I'm going to do this thing. But a lot of the time we don't even think about it. Pausing gives us a chance to consider ourselves and to consider what's going on, who are we talking to, what are they asking, what are they expecting. Gets to notice, what am I thinking? Classic example, you, somebody listening might be somebody who they've retired, they're getting asked to do stuff. Outwardly, they would typically be like, yeah, 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 sure. Inwardly, they're like, I can't believe this person asking me to do this. Don't they realize I've got better things to do than be running around doing things? That we need to notice those thoughts. We need to notice not just where we might be ruminating about others and cussing them in our head, but also where we are angry with ourselves, where we're like, I'm so exhausted. I'm so, I'm so annoyed at myself. Why can't you just turn around? And remember? We need to notice those types of thoughts. Or even where we're like, well, if I don't do whatever it is that I ask them, they're going to talk about me. They might not include me. These thoughts and feelings are letting you know that if you were to say yes based on them, it would be for the wrong reasons. And so the power of the pause is it breaks the cycle of people pleasing, of responding automatically. It gives you time to consider yourself, to consider what is going on. And some people, it just takes a few seconds. Honestly, even going like a couple of seconds can make, be already the difference between how things used to be because it's like, oh, I just noticed myself. And I know that there'll be people listening who can identify this with this where before you were like, yeah, 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 yeah. Now you pause, you realize, gosh, I got this sickening sensation in my stomach or wow, I am really tired or I'm overloaded or Ooh, got a bit of an anxious feeling there. I've had times where somebody is talking about something that they want me to do and I can feel, it feels like my stomach is gripping me. And immediately, as soon as I get that feeling, I'm like, oh, this person's expecting too much. It's not necessarily that they're doing a bad thing. But I, based on my bandwidth, my schedule, what I've already said that I am doing for myself or for somebody else, it's too much. But I wouldn't know this if I didn't pause. And we must remember as well, because we're disassociated from our bodies, we do tend to barrel through life, like just not even noticing what we're irritated by, what we're first, next thing you know, we're losing it with somebody. And we're like, well, why did I just snap at that person? Because all those other times when you didn't pause and you just barreled through life doing all the things, that's all built up. And now you can't even remember all those things that got on your nerves a few days ago, last week or whatever, because you didn't pay any attention to them at the time. So this pause allows you to check in with yourself, to check in with your body, to check in with the situation. What tips would you offer people listening on how to say no gracefully, but firmly? Oh, now it's interesting. One of the things that we concern ourselves with is that is this very question. How do I say no without like seeming harsh or rude 
difficult. How do I say it gracefully? And that's why in the book, I talk about the landmarks of boundary communication, where rather than going, how do I adjust my, my tone or my language to try to fit with this idea of what I think is graceful? It is when we approach things from a place of being compassionate, congruent, having clarity, so being clear, taking ownership, and of course, the grace element. So that's giving ourselves and others grace, not assuming the worst in people. Those five things, the compassion, the congruency, clarity, ownership, and grace, allow us to recognize that we are saying no in a way that respects ours and the other person's boundaries. Let's be clear as well. We don't have to say no perfectly. That's not to say we need to choose somebody out when we say no, but we are allowed to break break some eggs. We're allowed to jumble up our words and to not say things perfectly and to then clarify and learn from that. Well, on behalf of everyone listening, I want to thank you for not saying no to this podcast. <laughs> we learned so much and really congratulations on your book, The Joy of Saying No and best wishes. But thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Joe. It's been an absolute pleasure. Great. Thank you, Natalie. Here's a few action items to consider putting into practice following this conversation with Natalie Liu on her new book, The Joy of Saying No. Number one, practice the power of the pause. Before jumping in to say no too quickly, take a step back. Tune into what's going on with you physically and what you might be thinking. Make sure it's something that's in line with your priorities before committing. Lean into and get comfortable with the power of the pause. Number two, take attendance in your people-pleaser entourage. This was a new idea. Who's in your people-pleaser entourage, as she mentioned? Who are the people reliant on you saying yes? Step back, identify them, and think about how you can be more mindful when interacting with them next time. Set one new boundary. That's step number three. And it jumped out to me because of her comments about saying no is really mostly about operating from a place of integrity, authenticity, and honesty. As Natalie said, boundaries are about being more of who you really are. So think about one you want to set this year that's going to bring you to a place of greater authenticity. Thanks for listening to the Retirement Wisdom Podcast. You can find all of our episodes of Free Retirement School at retirementwisdom.com. There are six seasons now of episodes that you can browse. Our goal is to share the information with you that'll help you prepare to retire smarter.